Father God, we look to you once again. We sung so much about grace this morning and it touches our hearts about the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. But what about me? And so Lord, I pray today that the meditations of my heart, the stories that will be shared will be motivational, will encourage us that we have received so great a grace and that it has to impact us in a deep, deep way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, coming in, did I hear someone say, goodness gracious me, not another sermon on grace. Three in a row. What's going on? You know, when you Google the word goodness gracious me, what do you find? The first thing that pops up is a sitcom from BBC. It's from, from England. And you know how people in general, racists, make fun of Indians, and especially the British, because they colonized India. But goodness gracious me, reverses it. We have Indians making fun of the Brits and of the West in general. And I want to show you one where the Indians prove that Superman is Indian. Okay, let's try this. Superman's my favorite superhero. Ah, well, I can understand that. He's so brave, so strong, so Indian. <laughs> Superman Indian? No! Ah, come on, you've seen the film. He runs faster than a speeding train. There's only one country where you can run faster than the train. <laughs> but, but, Dad! What about Clark Kent? Ah, uh, Clark Kent. Uh, national health glasses. Bad haircut. Go to Calcutta, you see millions of civil servants dressed exactly the same. No, Dad! Superman comes from Krypton! Kerala! <laughs> Think about it, Yar. He's got two jobs. Indian. Never takes a day off work. Indian. <laughs> ah, this one is so fun. Eh? Did you know that Superman is 80 years old this year? I found out last week. Uh, so I was on the newspaper, so he's, uh, he's aging. Uh, there is another one, goodness gracious me, which argues that Jesus was Indian. But this one I'm not going to show you because it's, it's sacrilegious, okay? It's blasphemous. One online dictionary defines goodness gracious as an ex exclamation of excitement or surprise or frustration. And it is a term used in the American South, the southern part of America, primarily as a substitute for cursing. It's like instead of Using some curse word uh, is the gentler form. It's like, what the heck? So, goodness gracious me is like, what the heck? Uh, and, for example, it's like, goodness gracious me, Tommy, clean up that room. Or, goodness gracious me, what an ugly dog. And that's Trixie, by the way. Uh, my neighbor, as I walk the dog, I, we know the names of all the dogs in our neighborhood. But we don't know the names of the human beings. Okay, but this is Trixie. Um, very cute, uh, but really ugly. And then the definition adds that goodness gracious me is a term that sweet little old ladies use a lot. And now I understand why I don't hardly ever hear this phrase in PPH because we don't have sweet little old ladies. Um, 
it's not that we have grumpy old ladies, it's just that we don't have old ladies, right? So one day, <coughs> I saw this uh, on Christianity Today, uh, online, in an article, and it attracted my attention. It says, Max Lucado, one of the authors whose almost every book I've read, goes overboard on grace. And I thought, oh no, not another pastor gone hypergrace or, or con into, into hypergrace. Uh, he wasn't actually, as I read later on. So I read the article, and he was talking about his book. The title of the book is Grace. More than we deserve, <coughs> greater than we imagine. And, and hence this sermon series, this, this three sermons on, on grace. And Christianity Today asked Max Lucado, have you ever seen a church that's gone overboard on grace? And this was his reply. I never have. I've seen churches that have gone overboard on legalism. I think grace has this mystical ability to self-correct. The people I know who really walk with Christ, who live a life of grace, who believe they are saved, who believe that God loves them, who believe that they've been adopted into the family, they just seem to self-correct. They're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They don't beat themselves up when they fall, and they don't fall on purpose to take advantage of grace. But it's the other folks, the folks who teach salvation by works, who live in fear of death, who, who seem somewhat limited in their joy. So really, grace self-corrects? Really? And, and you, you cannot go overboard on grace? What is grace? When a pastor is caught cheating his wife on his wife, or caught cheating on the three-quarter tank petrol uh, rule, and, and yes, it happened, a pastor was caught cheating in Singapore, you would hear the phrase, he has fallen into grace. Oh, fallen from grace, I'm sorry. He has fallen from grace. Or when a business executive is convicted for corruption, you will probably hear this phrase, he has fallen from grace. And we have so come to believe that when someone falls into sin, he falls from grace. It's not incorrect. It is a correct saying, but it can be incomplete. Because when someone falls into sin, that is precisely when he has every opportunity to fall into grace. What do you do with sin? <coughs> you either continue to live in it, or you are grazed out of it. And I have to admit that, that grace is, is quite hard to, to define. And the simplest I've come across is justice is when you get what you deserve, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, and then grace is when you get what you don't deserve, or unmerited favour. It sounds kind of too simple, right? Let me show you a more complicated one. And this was a slide that Dr. Raj used two weeks ago. From <laughs> I found a textbook. It's like so thick. Uh, it was more like four inches thick. And it posits that grace actually comes out of an attribute of God, goodness and, and love. And, okay. um, and then from love is benevolence, is grace, is mercy, is uh, persistence. Now, the word goodness 
The Greek word is agathosune, from where we get this lady's name, Agatha. And I don't believe there is an Agatha in PPH. In fact, I don't really know of any Singaporean called Agatha. Uh, I know there is the, the author, Agatha Christie. And I believe one of the reasons why this name is not used is like, we Singaporeans pronounce it as Agatha. Right? <laughs> it's not Agatha, it's Agatha. And so that's why people don't like to use it. But it means goodness, goodness. And you can be good by having integrity and purity, by being fair, by being true and right. So you can think about, say, a teacher who will say to her students, hand in your homework by Monday morning, 9 o'clock. And if you are late, I'm sorry, but if you get an A, it'll become a B. If you get a C, it becomes a D. So hand it in by 9 a.m. on Monday morning. And that is goodness. It's, it's hard-edged, but it is goodness because you know exactly what will happen. And it doesn't matter if your father were the minister for finance or if over the weekend your pet cockroach dies and you are grieving. You hand it in by Monday morning, 9 a.m. Now, the other side of goodness, you can think of, of, of love and mercy and grace. And now the same teacher says, ah, oh, you've handed in your homework late. Now tell me why this is late. And then you tell her all the explanation. And then she takes in all this information. And then she decides to show you mercy instead of justice. Really, it's not very fair, but it is also good. When you think about the cross, there you see the full goodness of God. At the cross, the hard edge of justice meets the tender mercies, the tender softness of mercy. And so we call it grace. Still kind of hard to grasp. Did you know that Jesus never talked about grace? Um, and he never defined it, but he was it. Jesus was full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. And people marvel at the gracious words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. Luke chapter 4, verse 22. And so I think that grace comes out better, not by definition, but by demonstration, by real-life stories. And we can say that perhaps goodness or grace it's not so much a principle or a property or a thing. Goodness and grace is a person. Why do I say that? Look at Matthew chapter 19 from verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. What versus who? And so good is not so much a what, good is a who. A slightly different uh, record of it is in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. And Jesus said to this man, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So that's why I say goodness is a person. Goodness is God and godliness. And goodness begins with an acknowledgement of badness. 
Grace begins with an admission of sin. We are sinful, God is good. And grace is grace because there are sinful and, and undeserving people. And it's a story of the cross, where the hard edge of truth and justice meets the tender softness of grace. Jesus, full of grace and truth. And many episodes in Jesus' life demonstrates this grace. And one of the best, I guess, would be in the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Let me read that from John chapter 13. Now, what was the context? Jesus was with his 12 closest friends. 12 closest friends who would one day deny him, denounce him, desert him. And this, John chapter 13 from verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example have given you an example of grace that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now, in that same situation, if you were there, it's not so much what would Jesus do, what would you do? Remember the context around you are 12 of your closest companions and friends, people you have invested time and energies and emotional energies into, and you know that practically all of them would one day either deny you, desert you, or denounce you. And so perhaps you would say, Aya, kuku I mean, long time once, no need to wash feet. La. Just eat. La. Or you would stare at them intensely and say, why can't you guys, after I've taught you for nearly three years, show some initiative? Do I have to spell out every detail of a disciple's job description? including arranging for servant. And then you instruct Peter, go find a feet-washing servant. And Peter dutifully outsourced the task to his brother, uh, Andrew. And Andrew, go find a feet-washing servant. And then the 13 of you sit there waiting for a feet-washing servant to turn up. Or would you say in exasperation, must I do everything? Why must I do everything? And then you take off your cloak and then you go and wash everybody's feet and muttering under your breath, 
complaining all the time as you wash the 12 disciples' feet. You know what they say, that you cannot wash feet when you're wearing a judge's robe. That's why Jesus took off his outer garments, wrapped a towel, and then he washed the disciples' feet. He made no judgment. He put on humility. If you read Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, yes, you put on humility. And then he simply went ahead and he did what needed to be done. <laughs> Why? Because he was good and right and needed. So he did it out of the goodness of his character, out of the goodness of his heart. I think of Jesus perhaps asking himself, is this washing of feet necessary? And then he says, answer himself, yeah, it is a hygienic thing. It is a good thing. And in a sense, by washing his disciples' feet, he was making all the goodness of God pass before his disciples. You remember this phrase? The goodness of God is found in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God was speaking to Moses. Goodness begins with an admission of badness, of sin. That we are no good, that we are sinful. And goodness must end with an acknowledgement, not so much of what goodness is, but who goodness is. And that goodness is God. And goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's listed there, one of the nine. But goodness is a fruit of the Spirit of the child of God. So what would you do to reflect this goodness of God that you worship? Hence, goodness gracious me. I think there are three questions we can ask ourselves. Is it good? Is it gracious? Is it me? Is it good? Does it cause all of God's goodness to pass before the people? And is it gracious? Is there a gracious way? And is it me? What are the alternatives in that upper room of the Last Supper concerning dirty feet? The alternatives would be to blame someone, to scold someone, to order someone to do the job, to get a feet-washing servant, or to grace someone, <coughs> to be that someone of grace and to lead with grace. In John chapter 8, you know the story of a woman caught in sin and was to be stoned to death. And <coughs> when everybody were, not, were too ashamed to formally accuse her when Jesus defended her, and then everybody left, it was only Jesus and this woman, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, Woman, uh, why are you so like that? For goodness sake, get your life in order and then come and see me and then I will welcome you into the kingdom of God but get yourself straight. John chapter 8 verse 11, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now sin no more. Go and sin no more. What did he start with? He started with, I do not condemn you. Jesus loved first 
forgave first. And then he said, go and sin no more. And Jesus wanted his love and his forgiveness and his grace to motivate this woman to righteousness. You think the 12 disciples ever again had problems washing feet? When their own had been washed by the Lord, by the God of the universe, who then went on to die for their sins on the cross, who then pronounced, it is paid in full, it is finished. You think they will ever quarrel again about washing feet? In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace that God brings salvation, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Grace teaches us. And so we lead with grace. We start with grace, with forgiveness. And then grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It doesn't teach us to sin more so that you can receive more grace because eventually you will be forgiven. It doesn't do that. Grace teaches us, it motivates us to righteousness. It self-corrects. It self-corrects. Will it be good? Will it be gracious? And then thirdly, will it be me? Why not me? You know, we can say, that, oh yeah, washing feet is a very good thing. Very, very good, very good. It's very hygienic. Yeah, somebody should do it. In fact, somebody should do it out of grace, but oh, me? You know the story about the four, four people, right? Whose names were everybody, somebody, anybody, nobody. You've heard it before, right? So there was an important job to do, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody would do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. You see, with one and a half lungs, I still can do this. It's like, goodness gracious me, you get it? You get it? Three simple questions we ask ourselves to live a life of grace. Will it be good? Will it be gracious? And will it be me? You know, this handles like this is easy to remember, right? I think from now onwards, everybody will know. Goodness gracious me. So principles, handles like this are good. It needs to be applied. It needs to be demonstrated. But actually, it needs to be storied. It needs to be transformed into a real life story. Otherwise, we will never get grace or never get it. So I want to share a story with you. I call it a bizarre story. And it happened to me one Chinese New Year. You know, I hardly ever journal. I only journal when I feel very frustrated and when I need to organize my thoughts. And this was one of the few times that I journal. And I read to you verbatim from my journal. It's, um, it's a story of regret, really. 
But I hope it will motivate us to see what it could have been. It could have been an extraordinary story of grace. So let me read from my journal. A most bizarre thing happened yesterday. Tom, who is not his real name, brought a friend, Harry, to my home around 6 p.m. He wanted Harry, who was from South Asia, but brought up in America since he was two years old, to experience Chinese New Year. It was Chinese New Year open house at the pastor's home. And I didn't know it until the next day, but Tom wanted me to pray for, Hen for Harry as he was retrenched from an MNC that uh, he worked in Singapore for five years and would be returning to New York uh, in a few days. So it started very well with uh, small talk, finding out that he came from many generations of Christians, had an engineering degree from an Ivy League university, 44 years old, single, and he said he wanted to help the prison's ministry in Singapore, and then came this exchange. I said to him, so, did you vote? And he said, of course I did. I voted for Trump. All Christians should vote for Trump. If not, they need to have their heads examined and their faith re-evaluated. So I said, I would not vote for Trump. But it was as though he didn't hear me. And then he continued talking about Trump and all the great things that Trump has done since taking office and then about abortion. And he repeatedly said that Christians who do not vote for Trump need to have their faith re-evaluated. So I said, I would not vote for Trump because of the man that he is and because I cannot tell if he ever speaks the truth. And then he said, you are a Christian and you won't vote for Trump and so you support abortion? So I said, I don't. I never said that. And I can't believe you're saying this to me in my own house. <laughs> At which point, he left. He went out the door saying that this is not your house, but this is God's house and that I did not treat him like an equal and I want you to apologize to me, otherwise I'm not stepping in again. I apologize that I had offended him. In fact, I apologized three times. And then he came back in and he repeated the same thing, that all Christians who would not vote for Trump ought to have their faith re-evaluated. And then I reiterated that I believe, that I cannot believe you're saying this to my face in my house. And finally I said, I think it's better that you go because we cannot converse anymore. And so the first time in my life, I kicked somebody out of my house. And I couldn't sleep that night. It was so bizarre. The next day, just 18 hours after this, I met up with Tom, the guy who brought Harry to my house, and with another Christian brother who knows Harry, and just trying to process what happened. After leaving my home, Harry continued ranting to Tom. He wanted me to do more than apologize, which I had done three times. He wanted me to wash his feet, to apologize. He said to Tom, he wanted to test me to see what kind of pastor I was and if he could get me flustered. He succeeded. I was flustered. He told Tom, the guy who brought Harry in, that Tom, you are too subservient and you are actually being looked down upon by your pastor. And he told Tom that he was angry with Angeline, my wife, for offering him or returning to him only one orange and it was a moldy one. <laughs> you know, all this time, Angeline was trying to tell me, hey, calm down, calm down. All this time, until I told her this, 
and then I had to calm her down. <laughs> I said, we always give the best tool we can find in that basket that we have to return. You know, for those of you who don't understand the Chinese custom, at Chinese New Year, people bring oranges to you, usually two, and then you receive them, and when they leave your house, you give them back two oranges. And, um, you know, I say, I cannot turn water into wine, but I always turn moldy oranges into the best oranges. You know, you bring me two moldy ones, never mind. I give you two good ones back. That's what I do. Well, sometimes my eyesight is no good. Nah. So maybe <laughs> on the reverse side is moldy, I didn't know, but the intention was there. I also found out later that, that uh, from Tom that Harry had a history of offending many people. Uh, he refused to submit to the prison's fellowship uh, of Singapore that they needed to do some vetting before you can enter the, the, the prisons to, to help people, so he refused to submit. He gets drunk and behaves badly. He hates women because he's been rejected by many women. He hates all religions other than Christianity. He had trouble with church authority in America. He had trouble with church authority in Singapore. He has a very low opinion of Singapore and Singaporeans, about our culture, about food, our language. He calls Singlish chicken rice language. And there I ended my journal. I found out later that it all started even before he stepped into my house. As he was driving to my home and he saw the landed estate that I was living in, he got it into his mind that I was like one of those tele-evangelist pastors who milked the congregation's money to live in luxury. So already negative. Uh, but for those who need to know, I bought this house 18 years before, <laughs> before I, uh, I got uh, financial support from, from PPH. Fully paid already. Before PPH paid. It's like, goodness gracious me, what a bizarre incident. What a guy. Goodness gracious me, he will say, what a pastor. You know, I did tell Tom the next day that I was willing to wash Harry's feet. But it's too little, too late. If only I had listened less, oh sorry, listened more, spoke less, uh, I might have found out that Harry had a lot of hang-ups even before he stepped into the house. I might have found out that he was retrenched, I didn't know until the next day, and that he had to return to America very dejected, and that he needed me to pray for him and not to kick him out. I might have had the opportunity to see the self-correcting work of grace, that he would experience so much love and grace from me that he would be motivated to change his ways. I should have done my, my Bible study, and not just study, but apply it. You know the verses that says in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And what about us as disciples in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12? When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. How I wish that Tom could have said to me the next day, goodness gracious me, pastor, you were wonderful to my friend. Your grace really corrected him. Instead, Tom said to me the next day, you should have listened to Angeline more when she was trying to calm you down. 
You know, I seriously thought that I was quite a gracious person. I see no knots of agreement here. <laughs> I really thought I was. You know, after preaching so much about grace and all that. And I think you always think that you're not so bad until you meet your Judas. Until you meet your Peter. Your deniers, your denouncers, and your deserters. And I think God tests your grace as much as he tests your faith. So, it'll be Chinese New Year in about 10 months. There will be an open house if I'm still alive. Uh, this next year's Chinese New Year is not over a weekend, so it's like Tuesday and Wednesday. So it'll probably be the second day of the Chinese New Year. Let me announce now that my home will be open to all visitors. This time, I will try not to fail the test of grace. So, Dr. Raj can bring his Dr. Evil, <laughs> Mr. Monster, Harry 2.0, 3.0. You can bring your moldy oranges and get it exchanged for good ones. And you will say, I'm going to grace the living daylights out of my guests. I'm going to grace the living daylights out of my guests. Because his goodness, his gracious, is me. Okay, oh, short sermon. Uh, let me ask musicians to come and help us with the closing song. <coughs> you know, as, uh, as Max Lucado said, of people who were impacted by grace, he says they, they don't beat themselves up when they fall. So I try not to beat myself up. I try to process it. I go back and I talk to the guys. You know, I write my journal. And he says you, they don't fall on purpose to take advantage of grace. They don't fall on purpose so as to take advantage of grace. I say, oh, God has forgiven me those years ago. Now if I kick somebody else out of my house again, God will forgive again. No problem. So they don't do either of these things. They, instead, they press on. Like in Philippians chapter 3, it says, I press on. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. How did Christ Jesus take hold of me? He took hold of me by grace, by His work of grace. So I don't know how many of us here would have regrets like I have. How many times we have fallen. Know that grace doesn't measure that. This is not grace KPI. That tick, 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 so many times you have fallen. Ah, you're so bad. Grace doesn't beat you up when you fall. Instead, if you have really experienced grace, it self-corrects. You think, goodness gracious me, not like a curse word. In fact, like a motivational word. So this week, would we live our lives so that someone somewhere even unknown to us, might say, goodness gracious me, what a gracious person I've come across this week. What a gracious act I've seen at the coffee shop at lunch later on with your relatives that you're going to meet later on for dinner or whatever. Goodness gracious me, amazing. And so, goodness gracious me, I think it's an expression 
not just for sweet little old ladies, but I, I think ought to be heard a lot more in PPH. Will it be good? Will it be gracious? And then, will it be me? Let's rise as we sing a closing song.
Here I am, sinful man, humbled by your majestic grace. Here we are, Lord, sinful church, humbled by your majestic grace. That you would forgive us, that you would set us free from things that bind us. That you will love us. And so, God, we want to be good as you are good. We want to be gracious as you are gracious. So let it be me. Here I am. And so, God, would you enable each one of us as we step out from this church to be good, to be gracious, to be the child of God, fully graced. By amazing grace, by majestic grace. Thank you for the emblems that we take, and week by week, it tells us of painful sacrifice, bloodshed for us. Why? Because of grace. And Lord, would you stir in our hearts? To lead by grace and not expecting people to to change first, to be good first, before we love them, before we forgive. But for us to step out, to lead with grace, so that some way, somewhere, someday, somebody might be saying of us, "Goodness gracious me, what a gracious man." What a gracious woman! Goodness gracious me! What a gracious church! And so, Lord, deal with us. Help us to press on to take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of us. And I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, cell group leaders, uh, we need to meet downstairs.